Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Ames. In today's episode, I'm going to look at the topic of adoption, particularly interracial adoption. Stay tuned. So I picked the topic of adoption because I'm adopted and as most people know, my adoptive parents are white. So in today's episode, I'm going to look at the history of adoption and also focus a lot on transracial adoption, speak a little bit about my own experiences, and I'm also going to be interviewing a friend of mine who is an adoptive parent. So if we start by looking at the history of adoption in the U.S., uh, a lot of it has traditionally been black and white in the sense of white parents were more likely to accept what we would call, and I'm using quote marks here, yellow, red, brown children. So a lot of of parents who were looking to adopt, particularly after World War II, a lot of them were facing sort of pressure, if you will, from society in terms of why would you want to raise a child that's not your own child, especially if the child doesn't look like you. So that being said, though, black children and white parents have always kind of defined the debate about transracial adoption. And it's really a lot of it started, believe it or not, after Loving v. Virginia, which we talked about in a previous episode, uh, which was a 1967 Supreme Court case that made laws prohibiting racial intermarriage unconstitutional. That So after that happened, a lot of states also made interracial adoptions legal. However, some states like Louisiana continued to ban those adoptions. So any type of family making between blacks and whites were invariably what those statutes and those laws aimed to prevent. Even at their peak around 1970, there were maybe 2,500 such adoptions finalized each year. And no more than about 12,000 African-American children in all were placed in white homes before 1975. So a lot of researchers, policymakers, and child welfare professionals really scrutinized these adoptions in hopes of discovering whether interracial families helped or hurt children, and if so, how. So there's a lot of studies, obviously. You can find studies sort of on everything uh, that would show that a lot of the children's development or identity was maybe harmed or hindered, but it didn't really answer how or exactly what this looked like. So transracial adoption, as I said, was really sort of a controversial topic, and it was definitely something, though, that started even before the 1960s and 70s. In fact, when doing some research, I saw that the first recorded adoption of an African-American child placed in a white home actually took place in Minnesota in 1948. And there's also in, in Washington state, there's a white couple, their names are the Johnsons. They took in an African-American child uh, through foster care in 1944 when she was six weeks old. And they eventually ended up adopting her against the advice of their social worker. So there were actually campaigns during the 1950s to promote African-American adoptions and it did actually inspire some white couples to investigate such transracial adoptions. Of course, there was certainly discrimination, as you can imagine, and there were several agencies that really did not want to place 
African American kids in white homes. And there were also some issues with families. Some, not all of these families became targets of violence and harassment. There was a program of the the Children's Home Society of Minnesota called PAMY, which stood for Parents Who Adopt Minority Youngsters. And they found that uh, a lot of the placements in the 1960s were pretty uneventful. Things were were pretty good in the sense that not all families were harassed and um, not all families were, were given a hard time. So this definitely did happen. Not a lot, but it happened in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. I will say the debate about transracial adoption did change a little bit in the 1970s. That was when the National Association of Black Social Workers issued a statement that really took a stand against the placement of black children in white homes for any reason. They actually called that unnatural, artificial, unnecessary. And they were concerned that it was essentially relegating African-Americans to chattel status. So they felt that um, white families were adopting these kids not for the right reasons. Essentially, they were just doing it to get free help or, or what have you. The organization was actually so committed to the position that uh, there are even foster homes that were uh, refusing to to accept their white foster parents that were refusing to accept black children because they were very concerned about the the pressure and the the conversation that was going on at the time in this the in the early 70s in 1973 the child welfare league of america adoption standards which had been revised a couple years earlier to make them seem a little bit friendlier to translate transracial adoption were written to basically clarify that same race placements were always better so a lot of the agencies that popped up in the 70s and 80s uh a lot of them in in cities like detroit for example there are homes for black children there were a couple children's services in new york as well a lot of these really worked to find black adoptive families that would take in these these black children uh, that being said, at times it was hard to find that, uh, even though, of course, there were families, there were black families that were looking to adopt children, definitely the number of white families was quite larger. So interestingly, though, since 1972, the numbers of black white adoptions have actually declined, and this may have to do with a lot of the, the prejudice and the preferences and and a lot of the comments from society, but it also might not. Um, there's a lot of factors, I think, to look into it. And certainly part of it is that international adoption has become very common. Not common in a sense of obviously adoption in general is not a hugely common thing, but international adoption throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and obviously current current times, it has actually become more more of a thing than than domestic adoption and so that could be part of the reason that some families are shifting from adopting domestically versus adopting inter adopting internationally so to, to look at international adoption international international adoption within the u.s really only kicked off after world war ii 
there were a sizable number of children in other countries who had been fathered by U.S. soldiers, and many of them were ostracized and really neglected in their home countries as a result of their mixed-race heritage. And the interest in these children within the U.S. grew as knowledge about their existence kind of spread. And before long, there were actually a lot of religious groups across the country who mobilized in their effort to give these children homes. So one of the key events in the early years of international adoption actually came in 1955 when Henry and Bertha Holt, they were actually, they lived in middle of nowhere, Oregon. They ended up adopting eight Korean War orphans through the Special Act of Congress. And they actually went on to found an organization. It was a whole International Children's Services. And it's a charitable organization that actually still exists to this day. So as the years progressed, we actually saw the numbers of international adoptions continue to climb. But these numbers received another large boost, actually, as a result of China opening their orphanages to the Western world in 1992. And that was, a lot of it was due to that fallout with the whole one-child policy. Obviously, nowadays, they have gotten rid of that. But at the time, that was really huge, and it left thousands of abandoned daughters. And I say, obviously, most of them were, were girls. And in fact, when I was living in China... I had a chance to go to Guangzhou, which is kind of like the unofficial uh, adoptive site, if you will, in China. And I saw a lot of families, American families, families really from all over the world, and they were there to to adopt uh, Chinese babies. And I would say nine out of ten of those babies were girls because that was just... Unfortunately, that still is sort of the the case that the unwanted children tend to be girls. But going back to what I was saying, that the number of international adoptions really continued to climb until it hit its peak in about 2004, when families in the U.S., according to to, to surveys and statistics, they adopted 22,990 children. Since that time in 04, there has been a drop in international adoptions, and a lot of that can actually be attributed to countries around the world deciding to close their doors to international parents seeking to adopt. Another reason, though, for the decline is also the systemic corruption that's really, unfortunately, been part of the adoption industry. There were concerns from the beginning about there was a lack of oversight involved in a lot of international adoptions, particularly depending on what country you're you're looking at. And I think over time, people came to realize that, well, there are still issues uh, in in you know trying to to circumnavigate the, the system, particularly international, because a lot of times you're working with countries, you're working with different languages, you're working with different cultures. Uh, so I think a lot of people realized that maybe it was, a, it was a bit challenging. And certainly there are rules, there are regulations, but as I said, they're not always well uh, supervised and they're not always, uh, there's not always a lot of oversight. So international adoptions, though, I would say have helped to destigmatize a lot of transracial adoption within the U.S., since a lot of international adoptions also fall under that umbrella of transracial adoptions. 
Uh, one point two that I I want to say about transracial adoption is that it has also affected the Native American community, but with a different set of circumstances. So, interesting history on this. Before nineteen seventy eight. It is estimated that in certain states, between 25 to 35% of Native American children were taken away from their homes, with 90% of those children being placed in white families. So, of course, a lot of the issues that came up, as you can imagine, were related to culture. And failing to understand traditional Native American culture and child-rearing practices, a lot of officials and social workers from public and private agencies claimed that the removal of Native American children from their families was in the best interest of the children. So, unfortunately, the problem is that these social workers many of them, I would say most of them white, didn't really acknowledge the fact that a lot of Native American communities and tribes have specific ways of raising their children, certain traditions that they teach these children. And so a lot of these kids were removed uh, under the idea of, oh, they're going to be living in a nicer house with, you know, more money, more opportunities, etc. So These children were sometimes taken, though, through fraudulent means, and parents were often misled or they were sort of forced to relinquish their children. And this is a similar trend to, uh, not to get too off topic, but it's a similar trend of forced removal that occurred among Native children in Canada. We also see that with Aboriginal children in Australia as well. And actually, in a report that I was reading about Sydney, they said that about 200,000 Australian Aboriginal children were removed from their families and placed with white families for assimilation into mainstream culture. So you can imagine the, the issues that sort of arose from that. And the adoption of Native American children by white parents raised similar concerns as those with Australia and Aboriginal children. Because a lot of people were sort of saying, okay, Is this just another form of cultural genocide? And in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed by Congress, and it was enacted in response to a lot of these concerns and questions. And the goal of the Indian Child Welfare Act was essentially to prevent illegal adoptions of Native American children by white parents and to prevent any type of unethical removal of Native American children from their homes. That being said, uh, as of 1997, Native American children are, were actually still being removed and separated from their homes with, they estimate, about 20 to 30 percent being cared for or adopted by non-Native American families. So there's actually a lot to, to look at when we're discussing domestic adoption, international adoption, transracial adoption, and there's there's a lot of really interesting information out there. Okay, a few things that I also want to talk about before I talk about my own experiences, just some interesting facts. Uh, worldwide, it's, it's often easier to adopt black kids, Asian kids, Hispanic kids than it is white children. And also an interesting fact that I read is about 24% of adopted children in the U.S. are actually adopted by their own relatives. 
So looking at statistics and all of that, about 40% of the other 76% of adoptees that aren't adopted by relatives, whether it's domestic adoption or, or international adoption, they are of a different race than their adoptive parent. That that was according to a survey I actually read, and it was a 2007 survey, survey by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So it can be hard for adoptive parents if they want a white newborn. The wait time and the costs are actually higher than if they were adopting a, a black child or an Asian kid or or a Hispanic child. So a lot of that maybe factors into why you see white families adopting outside of their own race, because even if they wanted to adopt a white baby, uh, particularly a newborn, it can be really hard to to get that, to actually... it, it sounds funny, but it's sort of like you're put on this waiting list, I suppose. And so the waiting list is a lot shorter if you're looking to adopt uh, a baby of color or child of color. So a couple things that people uh, always point out, too, with, with adoption is there's sort of the the issues, I guess, of assimilation and also of standing out. So assimilation, I guess when... When the child is young, I mean, he or she doesn't really know or care if he has the same color skin as the parent. I mean, I think a child just wants love and care and they want to be taken care of. But certainly, yeah, I mean, when you grow up as you get older, uh, they're going to have questions and concerns and sort of look at photos and say, hey, you know, I don't I don't match. I look different. And Definitely, though, I would say one one advantage of adopting a child of another race is that it's hard to hide the fact that your kid is adopted. I mean, I, I think I kind of already always knew that I was adopted because if I look at myself and I look at my, my family, obviously we don't look alike. So I, I have heard of some instances where a family has adopted a child and they never told the kid that they were adopted because uh, the kid sort of looked like their parents, their adoptive parents, and and so they never knew they were adopted. Um, but that was never, of course, my case. Uh, standing out can also be an issue, too. If you're a transracial family, you do stand out. I mean, we all know the U.S. is not a colorblind environment, and, you know, people might approach you in the supermarket. They might ask about your kid. They might make some comments. They might treat you like a saint. Like, wow, that's amazing. Congratulations, you adopted like you you did it like you adopted a kid from another country or wow you know so that that could be something you're definitely not going to blend in your your child is not going going to have the same identity as as a sibling or a child of another race and you know definitely standing out and looking different can can be a problem i was reading in there a journal, a study that I read uh, that said that 50% of Asian and black adoptees felt discomfort over their racial parents. So I guess that sometimes can be a thing, you know, parents who adopt transracially might need to take extra steps to ensure their child develops a sense of racial heritage and pride in who he or she is. So, okay, to talk a little bit about my own experiences as an adopted person, I think to begin with one common thing that I always hear is like, wow, you were adopted. You're so lucky. That means your your parents actually wanted you. <laughs> and I, I think people say lucky in the sense also of 
some children, obviously a lot of children, uh, end up being stuck in the foster care and, and they don't get adopted and they don't have a chance to, to have a family. And that's, that's something that's really, really sad. And there's certainly more children in foster care than there are adoptive families. So yes, in that sense, I think there is luck, I guess you could say, you know, for, for children that get adopted, especially those that get adopted early. But I do think there is also a lot of emotional baggage in the sense that comes with being adopted that I think a lot of people wouldn't want to have. You know, I, I have also had people say, really, since the time I I was a teenager, I've had people say to me like, oh, hey, well, you know, at least your your birth mother didn't get an adoption. Like That's really great. But, you know, personally, for me, I have to say that I, uh, you know, I'm pro-choice. You know, I think it's important for women to have those choices and have those options. And and while obviously I'm glad to be here living, I also wish that my birth mom or, or women like her, or really any women, had those resources and opportunities, whether it was in the 1980s in the South or today in 2021. You know, I think it's important for for women to have those choices, whether it's having the baby and raising it, having a baby, placing the baby for adoption or having an abortion. So I think that in my case, obviously, while my birth mother made the decision to to give birth to me and place me for adoption, I think that's not something that would work for all women. And I think adoption, like having a baby and, and keeping it or terminating the pregnancy, I think all of those choices, I think they hold their own challenges. So I think it's important to, to say that too, without getting too far off, off track. So yeah, I guess I've, I've talked a little bit about my experiences in previous episodes, but basically I was born in Dallas, Texas and in the late 1980s, well, 1989 to be specific. And and my birth mother was an unwed teenage mom who was actually from Louisiana, but her parents sent her away to live with a cousin when she found out she was pregnant. And I don't really think that she ever considered keeping me, to be honest, because I think her dream was always to attend college and then go into medical school. And she eventually became a, a nurse. And I, I also don't think that she ever really considered having an abortion because uh, I got the feeling that she was pretty religious, or at least her family was religious. So I think that wasn't wasn't really an option. So I guess that sort of leaves adoption as the only other choice uh, when you kind of think about the, the options and choices. It's really, really three. Anyways, that being said, after I was born, I was put in various foster care homes. And when I was about five weeks old, I was adopted by my parents in Maine. And as I've mentioned before, Maine is not really diverse. It's not, well, it's getting a little bit more so, but uh, particularly in the, the 80s and 90s, it wasn't really. And there were a few other adoptive families in the area because we had a network called MAPS, which was the main adoption network. But I have to say, as a kid, I wasn't particularly interested in being friends with kids just because they were adopted. And I think even as an adult, I don't even have that many friends who are adopted because, I don't know, I think for me it was just something about this idea of, oh, you should have, you should be friends with them because you share a similar experience. But I think that not, obviously, everybody's adoption experience 
experience, whether you're a birth mom or an adoptee or an adoptive parent, I think it's, it's very different. So I think that's another thing to mention as well. I would say looking back, I think the hardest thing for me as a, a transracial adoptee was just that part about standing out and looking different and feeling different. Obviously, I didn't look like my family. And I, of course, I, I didn't have the same traits. You know, I I like football and the color yellow. My, you know, my hair was was strange compared to everybody else's. I, you know, developed really fast. I hit puberty before anybody else did. Uh, There's just a lot of things that set me apart and just a lot of things that I didn't like. I felt really strange. I felt alone a lot of times um, just because I didn't look like my parents or my sister or anybody. Uh, I didn't look like any of my friends. I think there was a lot of depression that really started around that time in my in my early teens, um, just feeling like I wasn't good enough, that everybody else would be better off if I wasn't here, because I think you just get that feeling of like, you're not wanted, even though obviously the the irony is that if somebody adopts you, clearly that they want you, you know, but I think it was for me, just that feeling of why well, must not have been wanted if somebody would give birth to me and then not want to be around to raise me. So I think that was really hard for me emotionally. When I was about 15, I actually got in touch with my birth mother. And for the first time, I saw someone who looked like me. Well, I should say that we never met, but we exchanged phone calls and emails and and all of that. And we had a lot of the same interests. We had the same similar characteristics, nuances. And I think for the first time, I realized how normal people must feel having relatives that look like them and act like them. And I think I felt really excited because I thought, wow, okay, there's actually people that are like me. And uh, so that was really a big, big thing. And I really wanted to meet in person. And I was asking her for a while, you know, if we could meet up. And there's a lot of things that went on. And and I would say almost about a year or so to the date when we started talking, she decided that she didn't want to be in touch anymore. And she didn't want to have me in her life. And at the time, obviously, as a teenager, that was really hard for me to, to handle because you get this sense of like, you feel really heartbroken. You feel really rejected. I would say, uh, I think it was a uh, sort of a trauma, if you will, that took me a long time to kind of process and evaluate. And, uh, it's something that even now, I mean, I'm, I, I started going to a therapist last year and it's even something that we, we talk about and we touch on and we deal with because I think a lot of that stuff, you, you don't just kind of get over and you know a day or two a week or year or whatever I think it's kind of an ongoing process so yeah therapy's definitely helped but I think that all adoptive people you know might actually benefit from therapy heck probably all people uh, period should so I think now it, for me as someone that's almost 32 I think that I still am working on a lot of stuff related to to that related to to being adopted but I I, I guess I say all this uh just to kind of I said as I said talk about my own personal experiences because obviously everybody is different and I say this not to scare people away I just say it simply to be honest about my experience and I think it's it's hard for everybody. I think, you know, nobody, no one lives in an environment that's going to be diverse enough or friendly enough or good enough to protect, you know, children from, from the pain of racism. I'm talking, of course, if, if you uh, have adopted a child that is of another race. Like Nobody lives in an ideal situation and discrimination hurts everybody. 
all races, all ages, everybody. And I think white parents are especially uh, susceptible or I would, yeah, I would say susceptible to being surprised or or taken aback maybe by racist experiences because maybe they don't always anticipate it. And I, I think that parents of color can fall victim to feeling you know, discouraged, um, maybe disheartened in the face of kind of this ever-present reality of, of racial bias. And I think that in order to maybe support, successfully support children of color, maybe parents, you know, and all of us, we have to take an honest look at our own blind spots and, and biases in order to kind of be more, I don't know, to be better effective at being, you know, anti-racist allies. And, you know, I think that doesn't mean that people can't have really strong relationships. And, they, you know, I think that it's great to have international adoptions, transracial adoptions, all of that. I think that's really great and really important because obviously there are a lot of kids out there that need love. But I think, again, too, we all have to be conscious of our, our blind spots and our, our biases. So for today's interview, I'm really excited to have a friend of mine and an adoptive parent, um, Jackie, talk a little bit about her experiences. Uh, we talked a little bit about everything about closed versus open adoption, her experience uh, with her daughter and also her daughter daughter's biological family. So uh, really exciting to chat with her and hear a little bit more about uh, what she feels on kind of her experiences uh, with adoption in general. So let's go to the phones and see what she has to say. First thing I was really interested in is sort of how you got involved in adoption and how you decided that, you know, that was something that you wanted to, to pursue. Because obviously it's not you know, not everybody becomes adoptive parents for, you know, for whatever reason. So I'm always really curious as to, you know, what, what inspires somebody to, to pursue that as an option? Well, I thought about that. I remember when I was a kid, maybe a teenager, there was a show on TV about the Romanian orphanages and the horrific conditions there. And it really upset me and shocked me. And I think that was the first time I really became aware that people could do that, people could adopt children. And uh, I think throughout probably my young adult life, I've always known people that are involved with adoption, either as adoptees or uh, just part of the process in some way, adoptive parents. I remember uh, meeting a woman who had some biological children, and she was in the process of adopting a sibling group from Haiti. Oh, wow. Nice. And I think at that moment, I kind of, like, my eyes were really open, and my, uh, my heart was open, and I thought, that's exactly what I want to do. And, well, there's, you know, a lot involved with why that didn't happen. But sure. But we had started the process of... Um, I was actually, I had one biological child at the time, and I was going to go to an orphanage in Haiti and volunteer while That's amazing. Uh, we had been matched with the child, and, uh, well, I had gotten some bad health news, mm-hmm. and uh, so my doctor said, you can't go there you can't because do you it. don't have the health care that you need. 
so that was really actually quite heartbreaking for me because it had been something that I worked really hard to do and yep. it was a dream of mine to, to do I was going to live there wow and while while with my child with my biological child and get to know the uh, adoptive child in the orphanage while volunteering there and because it takes a long time for the paperwork to go through or it did at the time that's what I've heard so, yeah so when I learned that I couldn't do that, it was actually really, uh, it was really hard for me. But I, you know, I got blessed with a second biological child, and I kind of got swept up in all that uh, busyness and uh, life experience that comes with being a parent. Yep, <laughs> having two kids. A couple little kids. Yeah. <laughs> has health problems, which I had at the time. So uh, in the course of my young adulthood I had a really influential friend who was adopted at birth and her experience was largely negative she did not bond with her adoptive family mm. she was really, really sad. by the process and just by being friends with her I learned a lot about if I ever attempted to adopt a child my husband I should say um, what I would not do or what I would do and it really stuck with me the way that she was so harmed by the fact that she could not locate her birth mother she really wanted to okay so it was a big thing for her it was a major major life obstacle for her she had been adopted probably in the late 60s and it was a closed adoption through an attorney privately Mm -hmm. and whatever information her adopted mother had she was not willing to give to so Ooh. it was really it was impossible. She, she sought out the birth mother, and over probably twenty year period, wow. she actually did find the birth. Mother. That's amazing. But her birth mother was not interested in having a relationship with her, so she had the initial feeling of rejection, and then she had the adult feeling of rejection. Right. And and all of that stuff impacted me, so that I thought, if I ever adopt a child, there's certain things I'm going to make sure that I do for the birth mother, for the child, you know. Just for everybody. The best of the situation that, you know, I know that as the adopted mother, my part of the equation is the happy part. Mm-hmm. You know, I get all, I receive the joy, I get the excitement. Having a child and, you know, yeah. I get, I get the fulfillment of my dreams that I wanted to do this. But all of that stuff that's good for me is, is really based on something that's really sad for my child and her birth mother. You know, it's it's a hard thing to accept based on the fact that I had biological children and I kind of know some parts of what it feels like to, to have them and feel them growing in you. So it was uh, a really hard thing for me to overcome the sense of guilt when we adopted our child and I knew that her biological mother was suffering yeah from missing her you know yeah that's hard and uh, that was a big challenge for me as the adopted mother so but I think it also really speaks to you as a person as well because you're really aware of that and you're aware of the how the birth mother feels and obviously how how your daughter feels as well so I think that's that's a really big thing that maybe you know people don't always think about because I, I know something that that I, you know, I got a lot from people was like, oh, like, you're adopted, that's great, you know, that's, 
amazing, you must be so happy and all of that stuff. And I think, yeah, a lot of times people just see it as like a really happy occasion, which obviously it is. But, you know, there's also a lot of emotions and feelings uh, from, you know, everybody involved. So I think that, yeah, it's really good that you're, you know, you were very aware of that. And and also, you know, seeing your, your friend go through that experience, too. So you sort of saw, you know, a lot, probably a lot more than I guess other people would, you know, would see. So that's that's it was, big um, it was it was probably good and bad that i had contact with my daughter's birth mother mm-hmm. well, it was good because i knew that if i handled the relationship you know gingerly and i i did for the birth mother the things that i would want done for me if i if i did all that that would lead to good things for my child right and it was, it was that's what you're thinking bad. about not bad, but it was hard because I knew that it was not easy for her. You know, she wasn't, she didn't drop the kid off in my arms and run out and be like, woohoo, I'm having a party. She right. Really it was hard she, for her. She, yes. She put a lot of thought into her decision. Mm. She's, you know, has a lot of character and she's really emotionally intelligent. So she suffered. And I want that really to come across that it was really difficult decision for her she could have taken care of the child yeah. by herself yeah no doubt mm-hmm. plenty of single mothers do it you know but she has a dream for the baby that the baby would have you know a sisters yeah and a dad living there and and a mom that stayed home because that's i did that mm-hmm. and you know that was, that was important for her she envisioned for the baby you know and we had done the home study and we made our little bio that the um, adoption agency sent out and she saw that and she selected our family mm. so um, so it, I kept trying to tell myself that you know this is what she wanted right she wants you guys she chose us for yeah. a reason but it was really hard because every time I experience a happy time I would think oh you know I'm doing this at her expense right because yeah. she's missing out on this yes yeah so I, I tried to handle it in terms of the way that I would want someone to take care of it for me so I made sure that I provided her with a lot of pictures mm-hmm. this is awesome I, I used to write down all the little details you oh. know maybe eat broccoli for the first time you're so good or, yeah you know and I sent her those things I sent her like baby shoes and baby Aww. socks and the lock of hair from the first haircut. Yeah. And all important the first moments that came out. You know, I really tried to include her as much as I could, but you see, it was very hard for baby's first mother, and um, it took a while for her to be able to communicate back to me. And what I found most challenging was that. I didn't know if I was doing the right thing by always providing her this information, it's sending hard. her pictures, yeah. updating her. You know, we went here, we did this. Because how do you know? And, you know, it was hard to know, and I didn't want to hurt her more. So whenever I did have the opportunity, because I would hear from her, uh, you know, pretty regularly, periodically, uh, and I would say, is it okay? Is right. It painful? Is how it do you much? feel? Do you want more? Do you want less? She was saying, no, I love it. Please send it. So she had to go through her own um, journey as yeah. far as 
dealing with that. Because, you know, this, the adoption situation was not the only situation in her life. She had other things that led up to that point. And she had to deal with a lot of that stuff before she could really communicate with me. Yeah, and process. With us, not just me, with us. Yeah. So it took took a little while, but she was able to, um, I would say I was told her that my arms are always open to her. And whatever she needed, whatever she wanted, I'm here. She just has to tell me she needs it. I'm totally open to contact as much or as little, as often as you want. I meant it. Is she still in pretty frequent contact with you guys? Yes. Now, if I was to send her a text message, I would probably hear from her within two minutes, you know. Nice. Yeah. You know, our daughter is 13 now, and they have had video chats. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, we got a Christmas present for for our child and stuff oh, like that. That's so nice. Yes. Yeah, so they have contact. They have, a have as, much, contact. as much contact as, you know, works out. She's a busy young woman. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Teenagers. Yeah. They have their own lives. But, I mean, yeah. I, I think it's, I actually think it's really good because obviously, you know, with your friend, you said she was born in the 60s. Obviously, back then, it was pretty close adoption. And I know for me, I was born in the 80s. It was kind of the same thing. They didn't really have a choice between open and closed adoptions. And I think nowadays, it seems more more common to have open adoptions. So I know for me personally, I think I, I think it's a it's a good thing. But I don't how do you feel as as an adoptive parent, like, do you think it, overall it it's better for everybody involved to have those those open adoptions? Well, I think that if it's possible, yes. I'm sure mm-hmm. not all situations allow it. Right. Um, you know, if if the birth mother is having major life issues that would not make her a good influence, then maybe that's, what that's a different story. But that was not our our circumstances. That um, our birth mother you know, was excellent in every way. Yeah. So we, we were really, really fortunate that we can welcome her and welcome that contact. Um, I think the one thing I remember my friend telling me was she always wondered, like, who she looks like, why mm-hmm. she had, she had a certain, um, she had scoliosis, and she wanted to know who else in her, her family. family had scoliosis, and, you know, who did she look like? She was a talented artist, was her, you know, talented artist too she really wanted to know all of these answers and very basic things and that's what ate her up is the not knowing yeah i can relate to that yeah that really stuck with me yeah when i had the opportunity to have the contact with her daughter's birth mother and her extended family um i could like see oh look you take after this member of your family yeah you both do this really well really I knew that was the right decision because my daughter doesn't have those questions she knows why she looks like that she knows oh look I get this same skin condition as this person right she already has that those answers and I think that's been really helpful for her because she doesn't have those questions I think that's I think that's really important actually you know because I think yeah I, I feel like I can really relate to what your friend said because I mean for me obviously too I mean you know you know, I mean, you know, my family and obviously, yeah, I don't, I don't look like them. So yeah, for me, I always did wonder that I was like, oh, you know, I wonder, am I, 
am I like the same height as you know my birth mom or my dad or like do I have this you know same eyes or like you know face or whatever and you know even if it's just small things or like oh I really like this type of music or I like you know this movie it's like you just you I don't know you kind of wonder that stuff which I think sounds silly to some people you know if they're not adopted it's like oh why why do you even care you know but you grow up with that look just like you like I have two biologically related children the right third one is adopted and the biological right. kids can look at each other and see how they look at like each other yes right and exactly say oh you have the same you know nose as dad or something like that and and, and I have my third child who doesn't, doesn't have those features yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> you can hear my dog snoring <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. But, but, she, but my so my third child doesn't have those features but she knows whose features she does have yes and that was something that's that was important. Really important to me based on the people that I had met in my life and, and what they were curious about and knowing why, um, why they look the way they do or, you know, why they're good at whatever. X, Y, Z. Yeah. They like, kids like to know that. Yeah. Like a lot of biologically related people who live in the same home, they already know that. They right. They never even think twice about it. They don't. It's a given. Right. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I have... Yeah, I have the same eyes as my mom. I get my love of music from my grandma, you know, stuff like that. So for me, yeah, I mean, that was a big thing. I mean, obviously, I never, I never, unfortunately, ended up meeting up with my, my birth mom. But I mean, we exchanged photos. And when I looked at the, when I, for the first time I got a picture of her, I was like, oh, my God, I look just like her. You know, it was like, oh, all of a sudden I made, it, it kind of made sense. I was like, okay, I'm I, I'm not, like, such a weirdo. Like, there, it, there are actually people that look like me in this world. Yeah. Like, you know. And you have the added, you have the added layer that you grew up in an area where there were very few African-American people, or, or zero african Zero. Yeah, what do you mean very few, Just, Jackie? Anybody, there aren't any. Anyway, so. <laughs> yes. So, you know, my daughter is Caucasian. Right. So that, that look like her. You know, which would be yes, which would be really shocking. So it's like, yeah, I didn't want to have that. Yeah, but as a matter of fact, everyday conversation, and she's always had some kind of peripheral awareness that her birth mother's out there, and you know, being able to Zoom talk to each other has been excellent. And you know, sometimes they'll text back and forth. Oh, that's nice. And, and uh, we've even gone to visit her in person which was probably the most rewarding yeah. thing that, that I, I could have done in my life, that I have done in my life. That's amazing. Like, that's... I, feel I wasn't that's sure huge. it was going to happen, but uh, so, so my daughter has met her biological mother, her biological grandmother, and her biological aunt, and we spent some time together with them. And uh, it was the best decision that I've made, I think. And you made that happen, too. I mean, that was something that... Well, yeah, I feel like you really... that Yeah, that was a goal that you had for a long time to, to make I, it happen. I just, you know, sometimes when I would... Um, you know, I wasn't sure that the stuff I was sending out to the 
birth family was, you know, what they wanted, mm-hmm. wasn't sure. And um, for a while there, I didn't have um, a lot of contact, so I wasn't sure, you know, what they thought about me or family, you know, and Just I wasn't everything. sure if it was going to work out. But once uh, my daughter's birth mother kind of got to a, healthier more healed place she was able to reach back you know and that's great uh, and we were just waiting and you know, we were just so happy to have that ready to ready to, to welcome her, her. Just, yeah you know, do whatever we can to have as much contact as works out so uh, wow. it worked out that I, we, I traveled to her state and the the moment that stands out most of my mind you know it's a it's a, it was a major undertaking getting there because yeah you know I do have other children right and uh they didn't get to go on this exciting trip but um you know they understood it was they got it so we you know we took some airplanes and we drove and we got to the apartment complex and I remember you know I had met the birth mother and the birth grandmother before very briefly Mm -hmm. the day that my daughter was born so I kind of remember what you remember yeah to see my daughter next to them Oh. And I see, I see, I can see um, my daughter walking towards them, and her birth mother starting to walk toward my daughter, and then she started to run. Oh. And that imagery of her running, and her little head, <laughs> heads being like just about the same height, you know, they're both kind of tiny ladies. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and just that that moment that, that I just knew that was, I had done the right thing. I had That's a nice I worked moment. really hard at, at being somebody she could approach. That's amazing. I worked, worked really hard at maintaining contact and providing uh, as much information about me and our life and the child as I could. You know, I, I really, I really wanted that. I really dreamed that this would happen, and that was probably the one of the happiest moments of my life, seeing them meet each other. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, that's yeah, that's something that you're going to remember for, you know, the rest of your life. And obviously, I, I, everybody, you know, involved is going to remember that because that's just, yeah, I mean, that's one of those moments. So, yeah, you should be really, really proud of yourself for for making, you know, making that happen. And yeah, just continuing to be available, you know, for, for the birth mom and uh, it's, that's just nice. I don't know. It's just a nice, you know. Yeah. That's just a nice story. I know. That's nice. I, I I'm proud of I'm proud of my my daughter's you know first mom original mom mm-hmm. proud of her because you know I have the easy part of it. I just have to be open to her, and you know I get all the good parts of it. It's not a struggle for me to share the child. You know. I yeah. Think that probably comes from being a little bit older and having biological ch- children, but. I'm not threatened by the birth mother. I'm not afraid that she's going to take my place or or usurp my power, anything like that. I've always been open to her, and I've always um, you know, had so much respect and love for her. I've never said a bad word about her, and I never will. That's true, yeah. You know, no matter how we got here, you know, that, that the, the things we do when we're kids and stuff, it just... You know, I don't judge any of that stuff, so I have so much respect for the step she's taken, and I think she's an amazing person for my daughter to know, and I want them to have a relationship, I want them to have contact, and if I can do anything to help it, then I definitely 
tragedy. You will. Yeah. 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 Do you ever worry that she might decide, you know, for whatever reason, you know what, I don't I don't want to be involved anymore or I, I feel like I need to step back and take a break? Well, I, I did think of that when um, my daughter was a little bit younger. Yeah. So what I, what I did was I kind of, um, I intercept the information. I still kind of hmm, do. That's good. Um, so yeah. um, so if, if um, one of them says, I want to do a video chat, I kind of ask the other one about it. Yeah. So mainly from the birth mother to my daughter, you know, if she says, you know, do you have time to do it? And then. Um, I don't really tell my daughter just in case something happens. Right. So that way. That's smart. I don't want. That's really good. If something were to go wrong, like, she, you know, we couldn't do it that day. I don't want my daughter to think that anything negative from about her birth mother, you know? Exactly. So I kind of go act as a go-between. I don't know how much longer they'll want me to do that. Um, <laughs> I've offered plenty of times to back out of this. Yeah. <laughs> communicate together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now, my daughter still kind of wants me there, but. I'm not supposed to do anything embarrassing. You're not right. Anything. Don't don't screw it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of facilitate that. But if if her birth mother was to disappear completely, that would be a huge loss for my daughter. I don't think that would be the case. Yeah, I, don't I think, think so. Um, our birth mother is really um, healthy and able to have that contact now. I think it took her some work on her own, you know, personal personal issues to get to the point where she can have that contact and, and it's not overwhelming and painful for her. So I don't see that being something that would happen. Yeah, I think it sounds like you're in a good place. Because I know, yeah, I know for me, like, that was that was a big thing because I, I know for whatever reason, maybe because I was young, you know, at the time when, when I was in contact with my birth mom, I was, I was you know, 15, 16, and once, you know, I was in contact, I, for whatever reason, it hadn't really occurred to me, like, oh, maybe we won't, you know, be in contact anymore. You know, I just thought, well, now that we've, you know, connected, like, you know, this is how it's going to be. And so for me, it was really hard emotionally when she decided that she didn't want to be in my life anymore. And she decided that she didn't want contact because I was kind of like, wait, you know, we were just like starting to talk and get to know each other more. And we were talking about meeting up and, you know, all these things in the future. And so for me, that was like a big, that was a big loss, I guess, you know, you could say, because it was kind of like unexpected. I was like, what? You know, I thought we were going someplace. I thought things were, were good. So, you know, I think probably the child builds up the birth parent in their mind mm-hmm. they're, all, they're all good things they're everything that their adoptive parent is they're perfect in so many ways and um, I think that can be a little bit tricky right? because a lot of everybody has problems and completely you know, I, I don't know all the details of birth mother situation but maybe she just didn't she hasn't conquered hers yet you know yeah, I mean, it. yeah, I think a lot of it was, you know, and obviously I didn't know a lot of the, the situation, you know, when I, when I reached out and, you know, started talking to her. But I think a lot of it was she hadn't really, 
you know, told a lot of people in her family that she had a child. So, you know, a lot of them didn't know that she had been pregnant and she had given me up for adoption. And I think that she didn't ever really come to terms with it. I think that she, you know, it wasn't something that she ever really processed. And I think that she never really expect, I mean, obviously I'm speaking on her behalf. I don't know if this is true, but I get the impression that she never thought that I would, you know, contact her. So I think at first there was a lot of like excitement of like, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is great. Like, you know, I thought I would never hear from my, my biological daughter again. And then I think a lot of it was kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, I have to deal with this. I have to, you know, confront this. And then particularly, you know, me being the nosy person that I am also was like, you know, I was like, oh, I want to know more about you. I want to meet you. I want to do this. And I think that was also really scary for her. Like, whoa, I'm not, you know, I'm not ready to, to take that step. I don't, you know, I'm not sure if I want this child coming back into my life, you know, that type of thing. So I think that's probably a lot of that too comes from, you know, closed adoption where it's like, you go, you know, all these years not hearing anything versus like, in your case, obviously, you were continuing to update the birth mom and, you know, all of that. So I think that's probably more positive, like, you know, having an open, open adoption, if, you know, if possible, obviously, not every situation is, but if possible. I have heard, heard, you know, I've done some reading and I have heard a lot of uh, birth mothers say that when they're involved in an open adoption, the adoptive family starts out okay. And then over time, their contact wanes, and they they stop sending pictures, and they stop. They don't like they move, and they don't tell the birth mother. Oh, yeah. Like that. And I would never do that. And no, I, I know you wouldn't. That, um, you know, it, it, from both sides, birth parent and adopted parent, you have to be consistent. If you say you're going to send a picture every birthday, do that. Yeah. Because it matters to the child. The child will believe you. And you don't want to be a disappointment. And if you can't do it for the birth mother, then you shouldn't say it's an open adoption. You know, I don't think that after a number of years, anyway, um, that the birth mother forgets about the kid. You know, I don't think they, they're glad it's over. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like they're still, right, they're still thinking of that person, right. So I think that's that's true. You wonder more in years of the body. You know, they they're more curious about mm-hmm. what's going on, like what they're doing. Get older and as they develop, you know, and you you owe it. Both sides kind of have an obligation to fulfill. You know, if you have an open adoption, you can't change it mid game. Mid right. It's like no. So, that's but, yeah. No, it's yeah. I think I that's great. That, our circumstance has been very positive you know it's in a situation that's kind of built around a loss and a sadness you know we're really really lucky and fortunate that my daughter's original mother and I have a really good relationship a lot of communication Uh, you know it's probably unique and somewhat unusual but you know she's worked really hard and I've tried to always be really open to her so that she can reach out when mm-hmm. she needs to know what's going on or, you know, 
She's and, a, uh, not all situations work out like that. I do realize that. Well, I mean, I really, yeah, I really commend you for, for doing that and, you know, really continuing to, to have that relationship. And also, yeah, I mean, just thanks for for talking about it and explaining, you know, your situation and story because I, I think that's like really... It's really, I think that's really amazing, you know, that you've, you've been able to do that. So I really, I really appreciate that. Okay, it's that time of the episode. It's time for Ask a Black Friend. Okay, well, this question isn't really specifically race related, um, but in going with the theme of adoption, it's appropriate. So uh, one of my friends was asking me if I ever regretted uh, finding information and starting contact with, uh, initiating contact with my birth mom. Uh, I don't think I, no, I don't regret it. I think that... uh, you know, people, not obviously not all adoptees decide to do that. You know, some adoptees are fine not having any information or not going down that, that road. And obviously other other adoptees, they really, it's something that's really important to them. And in a lot of cases, they maybe meet up with their, their birth mom or their birth family. And sometimes they might even develop a close relationship. So, I mean, a lot of it, it really depends, of course, on... On the person, so even though for me and in, uh, in my situation it didn't work out in the sense that obviously we're not we're not still in touch and I never got a chance to meet her i I don't regret that because I think everything is a learning experience, and I think as cliche as this sounds, I think that everything kind of happens for a reason so obviously at the time when when I was a teenager and I was reaching out, I was hoping for more I was hoping for a relationship I was hoping that that things would be different. But as I said, you know, things happen for a reason and we, we don't always have control over that and we can always uh, plan things out exactly the way that we want. So I think it is what it is and certainly it uh, could have ended a different way and it could have ended better, but I, I don't regret it at all. So that is pretty much it for our episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much to Jackie for sharing her experiences as an adoptive parent. And I look forward to to speaking with all of you next week. <laughs>